Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Two Cups of Tea. I'm Chris Heath, and my job is a simple one. I stick the kettle on, press the record button, and get to listen to another compelling life story from an older legend. And today's show, I have to say, is one of the most compelling, exciting, and insightful interviews I've ever done. It's the life story of 80-year-old Peter Palai. Born in 1938 in Budapest, Hungary, he was only a small boy when he was separated from his parents when war broke out. A Jewish boy under the heel of the Nazis and then after the war, the communist regime, he went on to play a role in the attempted Hungarian Revolution of 1956, and he speaks with incredible honesty and vivid detail about how those events unfolded. After being forced to leave his homeland, he travels to Britain as a refugee, and his stories of this huge cultural shift are wonderful and profoundly moving. Anyway, enough from me, let's do this. I was born in 1938 in Budapest, capital of Hungary, and uh, I've been. I, I left Hungary at the age of 18 in 1956 mm. after the revolution was defeated. So, so whereabouts exactly were you born? I was born in the capital on the left bank of the river. Budapest is made up of two towns originally, Buda and Pesh. So you were. I, I'm from the Pesh side. That's right. where I was born. Yeah. And um, born in 1938, just practically before the outbreak of the war. And I think that if, you know, my mum conceives a year or two later, she probably would have had it taken away because she was getting very pessimistic about the world already. Uh, she was trying to get my father to emigrate to Australia yes. in 1938. My parents are Jewish. So she was pessimistic about, obviously, the yes, rise Austria of... Austria was just occupied by Hitler next door in March 1938. But I was already on the way, so I was born. But mm. Dad just thought that nothing will happen in Hungary and, you know, we'll survive all that and he wouldn't budge. And um, my mum proved to be right. Yeah. Um, that most of Dad's family in the countryside is a country boy, one of seven brothers and sisters. Mm. All those who lived in the country, including his mum, were taken to the guest chambers. The whole oh my of God. my mum's family, her two brothers, her parents, mum has no blood relative left mm. after the war. So she was right. At the end of the war, both my parents miraculously survived, so did I. 
and uh, we could start again. And my mom once more said to my father, Andrew, let's just leave. And she got, I think she got some Australian visas. And father said, no, because this is going to be a new world, Nazism was the So this is after, this is after. After the war, yes. And uh, so that stayed, and they stayed. And I, I grew up in, in communist Hungary <laughs> from a start with the, the sort of semi-fascistic regime and eventually German occupation. Then we went to, we were liberated by the Russians, which I suppose for Jewish people is true because they saved our lives. But uh, it wasn't much of a liberation because they imposed another kind of dictatorship. Yes. And there were quarrels at home because dad sympathized with the communists. In fact, he became a card-carrying part mem- party member. Party member, yeah. Because he was taken to a labor battalion, which was a mixed bunch of political and Jewish uh, prisoners. Mm. And he was radicalized. And, of course, from his point of view, the Russian did most of the fighting and the communism was to his mind, the polar opposite of Nazism. So he was, you know, enticed by this. And mum, who wasn't very educated or well-versed in politics, she had a much more sane attitude about that. And she simply called the communists rat fascists. Yeah. And uh, there the were rat two fascists. rat fascists, yeah. yeah. And there were huge quarrels at home about that uh, just after the war. When, when I was reunited with my parents. Sure. When you say reunited with your parents, where were you during the war? Did you go and... I, I do remember this quite well. I remember one of the, my, my sharpest memories was when they started rounding up the Jews in our street. Mm. The concierge, this was a huge block of flats, six stories. Mm. The concierge, who was an ethnic German, a very decent man, a lot of ethnic Germans sided with the Nazis. He didn't. Mm. He came up, and I remember this conversation. I was six and a half years old, and he was, his name was Kaltenecker. Mr. Kaltenecker said to my mom, uh, Madam, you look far too Jewish. We cannot do anything for you. But Peter is blonde, which I was, mm. and I also spoke German, and uh, we can take him down to our place and pretend that he's a bombed-out relative, nice, blonde-headed, you know, German-looking child. Mm. But we don't know where they're taking you. We didn't know about Auschwitz at the time. Mum didn't know. They were just going, we were going to be taken east. That's mm. all one knew. And resettled. That was the idea. They didn't know it was going to gas chambers. And so, although yeah. my mum's parents had already perished, but we didn't know about that. They you didn't know at the time away. that they had. They, they had just been knew taken they'd away. Gone. They're gone, but we didn't know what happened to them. Sure. Then my mom had to make a decision on the spot whether to give me to this guy and me being left by her and my dad had been away already about two years in the labor battalion. I hadn't seen him. I practically forgot what he looked like. Mm. So my mom had to trust this man and mom always had very sharp instincts. And she said, God bless you, please take Peter. She was taken away. And I was taken downstairs to the concierge's flat. And sure enough, these people came, uh, looked at me, the Mr. Kaltenecker gave them this spiel about, you know, meeting their relative, nice German boy, blah, blah, blah. Never mind the fact that I was circumcised. Thank God they didn't look. And uh, so then there was no mom and no dad. And I remember being with him, and things got pretty hot 
they were worried about being, you know, because the punishment for hiding Jews was that. And uh, I was handed over to a retired Hungarian military officer, Gentile, obviously. Mm. He hid me for a while, and there were some more people that I can't remember, and I remember being for a few days with someone who worked for the Swiss embassy. Mm. And then I don't quite remember how I ended up with a wonderful woman. Her name is Anna Hirchu, was. Mm. Uh, this woman was totally amazing. We were in a tenement block mm. in the middle of Budapest. She was hiding in a small flat, over 20 of us. And we were not allowed to go down to the air raid shelter when there were bomb ra bombing raids because anyone might just... You would mix with all of the people. Give, and, yeah. give, give us up. We realized, you know, 20 kids, some of them looking obviously Jewish, some not. Yeah. Obviously, if there's one informer, we're all done. Yeah. So she was amazing. Her brother brought food from the countryside. She, was an, she had been an ordinary not nursemaid, but something like a nursemaid to a Jewish family. And when the mother was taken away, she saved the two kids. And then she made it her job to collect stray Jewish kids. So you were staying with this, and please, tell me her name again. Anna Hirchu. Anna Hirchu. Yes. Her name is uh, recorded at uh, Yad Vashem in Jerusalem yeah. as one of the righteous ones. So what a fantastic woman. She was. She was. But how did that? How did that work practically? In that, do you remember how? I remember the twenty children were hidden. Well, we just couldn't go out. We go in the fourth floor flat. We had to keep very, very quiet. Mm. And her brother, uh, she was a country girl, and her brother used to bring up food from the countryside for us, and bring it in in bits and pieces because to be seen with lots of food at a time when there was already shortage was dangerous. You must and, have had to think about everything, as in, you know, how much food you can bring in without giving the game yeah. away. It must have been a terrifying existence for her. She was incredibly calm and correct. I remember her. She was a tower of strength. I remember her being uh, very calm at all times and very, very decisive. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember the air raids. And I remember, you know, my, my first real political thought was at that age, during an air raid, and there were mainly uh, English and American planes bombing. Mm. And we had to stay up on the fourth floor. And it was colorful. I was frightened, but I was also fascinated by the sight of an air raid. Uh, of what it looked like. Yeah, because you weren't in a shelter. No. So you, would, yeah. what, you were watching yeah. it. And at the same, I was terrified. I mean, we were sitting docks for these bombers. Yeah. And at the same time, I knew that they are on my side. Mm. So they endangered my life, and at the same time, I was somehow rooting for them. It, it was a very strange mixed feeling for yeah, me. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I knew they were, they were the right side. Yeah. And the, the, the most fantastic thing that happened was that... Originally, I thought it was a bomb that hit the house, but yes. there was a massive explosion in that building. Everyone died in the air raid shelter. Oh, my downstairs. God. And we were the only ones left alive on the fourth floor with the staircase fallen down. Yeah. And Hungarian firemen took us down by ladders one by one. Now, we were incredibly lucky. That was a decent lot. 
They, yeah, because they could have. There was one informer amongst them. That could have been it. They knew what it was. Yeah. They suggested to Anna where to take us. There was all the houses had air raid shelters underneath them in Midtown. Yeah. And they knew of an air raid shelter with lots of so-called suspicious characters, deserters from the army. Mm. And that's where we ended up. And I only remember Anna telling us. Uh, Whenever any search party comes, one thing you must avoid at all costs, wriggle out of it, don't show your dick, you know, because we were circumcised, the boys. Mm. And, you know, that. <laughs> so we had to be mindful. It, it never happened. It yeah. was never called. In fact, there were no search parties, and this was very much towards the end of the siege of Budapest. Right. I cannot put dates on it, but it was winter. So I, my reckoning is that this uh, transfer from the bombed-out house to the permanent air raid shelter must have been January 1945. Right. Because within a few days, the Russians appeared. There was a hell of a lot of fighting above us. Mm. There was a German machine gun nest on first or second floor above us. And it changed hands a few times, hand-to-hand fighting between Russians and Germans. Wow. I remember the Russians coming in, and what also amazed me about the Russians, their incredible kindness to children. I mean, they would shoot you on sight if you didn't go over your stopwatch, because they loved watches, the Russians, for some other reason. They, 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 really? they just took everyone's watches that they could. But I suppose yeah. there must be a shortage in yes, Soviet Russia. Yes, yes, yeah. And, uh, but with children, you know, they were fantastic. They, that's the first time I had the sort of wafer-type chocolates given to me by Russian soldiers. Yeah. And it was very strange. Later on, Anna's brother, who died not so long ago in Hungary, he told me that people were raped, but Anna wasn't. Uh, I think she was blacked up to look like an older woman. Yeah. And a lot of people did that. There were tales preceding the Russians that they raped. They certainly raped and robbed and, you know. Yeah. So liberation wasn't an unmixed blessing for most people. So was that the last place that you stayed before you were reunited with your parents? Um, well, I wasn't with any of my parents. Anna once told me that she knew where my mom was. Yeah. There must have been a network of people who were hiding Jews. And uh, what happened was, we were still in the RH shelter, but the Russians had already taken that part of the town. We were not in danger of being, you know, killed for being Jewish anymore. Right. And then one day, a really frightening-looking bunch of people came in mixture of Hungarian, German, and Russian uniforms. Some of them were armed, they were all unshaven. They would look pretty frightening. Like. Yeah. And one guy with a, his eyebrows, eyebrows grown together was going from kid to kid, holding us by the face and looking at us. And he held me, I found him frightening, and he broke down in tears. That was my dad. Somehow he heard when they got... He escaped. What was your dad? He, uh, he was in the Labour Battalion. Sure. In, in, you know, and they broke out in the Carpathian Mountains. They, they killed their guards, knocked them out, yeah. and escaped. And they made their way, with a few of his mates, to Budapest. 
on foot while the war was raging on. So this scary-looking guy with the eyebrows growing together was your dad? Was my dad. And he uh, was looking for you? Yes. Because That's he, why he was holding the children's faces? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, but the thing was that once he got to Budapest, he somehow found people who were part of this network who had been hiding there. Yeah. And he heard of Anna. And he was told roughly where to find her. So they, he was going from place to place with some of his mates looking for me. Yeah. And, of course, he recognized me. I didn't recognize him. I was terrified. I didn't want to go with him. And Anna assured me it was my dad. And then he showed me a photograph of him and me being then much younger, standing yeah. together, and mom. And then I believed him. But I was very reluctant to leave Anna. Yeah, well, that, that you would have been I hadn't seen so him for two years. And no matter, just being told that this yeah. person with your dad and believing it, it must... Yeah. That must have been a, a very confusing kind of time or, it was. or a moment. It was. But I, I I, grew to like him and we set out to find my mum, who was all turned out also in hiding. Yeah. What happened to mum, which unbeknown to me, she was taken to some brickworks where they collected Jews to be shipped uh, or taken by train to Auschwitz, mm. I presume. And she escaped. She was captured by the Hungarian Arrow Cross, beaten up, taken back. And then, by that time, the Allies had bombed the train, uh, the railway lines. Yeah. And Mum escaped again from that march. She escaped a second time. Yes. And then she ended up in a village where she knew no one. And she was just incredibly lucky. Somebody saw her and said, for God's sake, you look too Jewish. Let me take you to a doctor. This doctor bandaged her face up to disguise her Jewish features and gave her a certificate saying some dreadful skin disease that she had. Oh a forged certificate. And then somebody got her forged paper. She came up to Budapest and was hidden by with another Jewish woman in a few districts away from where I was. So they all survived. Um, but my grandparents didn't, and a lot of the cousins of my same age. Of course. All who lived, in, the survival rate in the capital was much greater. In the countryside, it was very difficult. Yeah, because you were so much more exposed. Yeah, yeah. We were reunited in 1945, January mm. 1945, definitely. We were together again. So what happened after the war? My dad became a card-carrying communist. He was employed as an agricultural expert. Uh, Mum started working for the National Theatre. <laughs> they had a very peculiar communist thing. You had to be audience organiser. <laughs> this meant that they, they had to stage a lot of really stupid Soviet plays, <laughs> which people didn't, didn't want to see. Yeah. And mom had to go out to the factories trying to persuade uh, the people to come and see these stupid plays. And yeah. all the factories had some cultural commissars in them, and mom made deals, and there were the, the occasional decent comedy, the occasional Shakespeare and thing. said... We give you ten tickets for Hamlet if you, you know, if twenty workers turn up and see some <laughs> glorious Soviet play. That was my mom's job. <laughs> it all sounds unbelievable, but you know that. This, this, and of course, I went to school. Yeah. And uh, 
dad became terribly disappointed with communism and I can date it practically. Oh, really? And of course, we had to work every summer, so-called voluntarily, for, to build socialism on building sites, state farm. Mm. And I actually saw how people lived, and it was in total contrast to the propaganda that was, you know, they said that our working class lives better than ever, our peasantry, you know, they have a fantastic life. They were starving, and they lived miserably, and they were underpaid and overworked. Mm. And, you know, it was a very unfair system. So you're 11 years old. What what was your schooling like? Do you remember, was it something you enjoyed? Did you did you relish school or did it, was it a necessary evil? I was very, very uncontrollable at school. Yeah. And also I was obsessed with the fact that uh, I asked Dad, why didn't the Jews fight back? I didn't realize that they were a minority, they were isolated, you know. Yeah. I was a kid, and to me, seeing after the war for three years, you could still see American films. I saw the Russian and American films, how they were killing Germans, all that, all the heroic partisans. Yeah. Why didn't we do that? And I had this sort of very strong idea that I am not going to be taken down by anyone. And if anyone makes an anti-Semitic remark, I will fight. Mm. Uh, that fight always ended badly for me. I was beaten up more times than I had suffered, probably. Really? Because I, I jumped at everything, and eventually I learned to fight. Eventually I, I was a sort of... I pretended to, to be a toughie. Deep down, I suppose I was always frightened. I went, unbeknown to my parents, I went to do boxing as well. They wouldn't mm. have let me otherwise. And um, I mixed with a very rough lot. And in my age group, that sort of anti-Semitism had faded away. Yeah. And by the age of 13 or 14, I could look after myself. I had a bit of a reputation. And I mixed with wrong guys. We went shoplifting and stuff like that. Mm. And wasn't particularly brilliant at school. Mm. At 14, I got to a, a much better school in Hungary. The education system was that you had... Uh, general school from 6 to 14. By that time, you know, I, I was totally against that regime that my dad had helped to build. Uh, also, uh, I mean, anything which was condemned by the communists was fashionable for us. And, and I became a, a jazz fan, and jazz was forbidden in Hungary at the time. You couldn't perform jazz. Uh, listening to Western radio stations, even to music programs, was punishable by imprisonment. Is that because it was like bohemian and decadent? or It was decadent, capitalist. It was, um, you know, American. Yeah. And consequently, about 70% of my classmates listened to jazz. At of course. To wherever they could get it. You had these American military stations in Europe, AFN, Stuttgart, American Forces Network. And then I think Voice of America... Jazz or Willis Conover became a legend in my generation. Mm. Started broadcasting, I think, in 1954 or 55. And we all got down to this, you know, one hour of jazz every evening late at night. Yeah. On short wave with the Russians jamming as much as they could. But the jamming... Really? You know, it, sometimes the music was clear and then some... You had this noise. Because, because, the, because as a matter of policy, the Russians were yeah, jamming the they jazz. They were jamming all Western stations that people might listen to. Yeah. And it turned out, I found that out later when I was working for the BBC, 
that uh, jamming was more expensive than broadcasting. <laughs> really? Yes. I don't know why. Wow. Don't ask me. I'm not technical, but... Uh, Goodness yeah. me, that's fascinating. Um, apart from the illicit late-night radio stations when they weren't being jammed, mm. did you have access to see any jazz at the time? No. It was just it was just that, yeah. that kind the, of... The nearest we came to seeing jazz was probably by the summer of 56, when, uh, you know, Stalin had been dead for three years, mm. and uh, even the Hungarian communist leadership was slightly changing. They were getting a bit more lenient. Yeah. And we had a Czech band. The Czechs somehow had a, a slightly more permissive attitude at the time. Yeah. And then Hungary, and there was a, a dance band, I would call it, Karel Vlach. And he came over to Hungary and he played American tunes. And I remember they didn't announce that they were American tunes. I remember one particular I tune didn't. I could carry. I, I have uh, internal hearing. Mm. Um, and uh, I could carry a tune in my head for a long time. I heard a tune which I loved. It took me three years to identify it by the time I was in the West. It was a tune originally played by the Gene Krupa band called Leave Us Leap. I loved that tune, and I heard it from these Czech guys. So Gene Krupa? It was Gene Krupa who originally recorded it. Tune. And uh, I just carried that. And, and I was totally mad about jazz. It, 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 it was liberating. It was, you know, the music of freedom, the whole concept of improvisation. Yeah. I knew very little. I started learning English, listening to Willis Conover practically. I had some occasional English lessons. I probably had about a hundred words of English. Yeah. But Willis Conover was a broadcaster with a beautiful, mellow voice. And he knew he was broadcasting to a foreign audience and he separated his words. So he would speak like, this right. is Willis Conover, Music USA. So at this speed, one day, I, by that time, I learned all the names of the instruments in English. Yeah. And then I heard a beautiful ballad played by him and he back announces it saying, uh, this was Cool Star Stan Getz. Cool. Looked it up and then cold. Mm. This guy's out of his mind. Why is that cool? <laughs> it's nothing to do with it. It's the warmest sound I ever heard. This song has I, 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 I didn't know the meaning of cool in jazz. And, yeah. You know, that sort of thing eventually one learned and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was forbidden fruit. Of course. Yeah, that, that matters. No, of course it matters. Yeah. So I kept this enthusiasm to the day. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see. I can see when I can see when you're talking about the music. Your eyes are still lighting up. So we must be getting near to 1956. Yes, yes. Which is, of course, when there was the revolution. Yes, yes. So what what happened to you during that? Well, I was at first year university studying law, mm. and. Uh, I wasn't over-political, but mm. I was anti-regime. We had heard the year before that East Berlin had risen mm. and was beaten down. But because Stalin was dead and there was confusion in Moscow, consequently there was confusion among the Hungarian leadership. 
and they lost it, lost grip on the situation. Yeah, of course. Because there's no clear message. That's right. Moscow was contradictory. They were fighting yeah. among themselves. Russia was suffering from that. Hungary, Hungarian communists were suffering from that. And that university, there was movement. The Poles were way ahead of us, demanding freedom and everything. And then a university in South Hungary, Szeged University, their youngsters decided to leave the Communist Youth Society membership membership of which was compulsory. Mm. And news traveled up to us in the capital and we had a meeting at university and decided we'll do exactly the same. Yeah. What's more, we'll go on the street on the 23rd of October and demonstrate to have a more lenient communist, Mr. Imre Noy, uh, put into power, mm. who was quite popular because he was briefly in that interregnum after Stalin's death, he was briefly prime minister and he... Yes. he he eased life a bit. Then he was removed. We wanted him back. Yeah. We also wanted to express sympathy for the Poles, leave the Communist Youth Society, etc. So we decided we'll march. And 23rd of October was a Tuesday. And then when we gathered at university, uh, we heard that the Minister of Interior banned the march which could mean great trouble and somehow... So this already must feel like it's building up to something huge. Yes, but I didn't think of violence at all. Yeah. And we just said that we'll march all the same, which was a pretty bold thing to do, yeah. even in a weakening communist regime. And by the time we determined that we go on the street, mm. the Minister of Interior withdrew his ban. He, he wasn't quite sure of what he was doing. Right. So the march went ahead and Hungary had two types of police ordinary police in blue uniforms yeah. and security police, which was dreaded, you know. Yeah. Ordinary police were on the street. They were very friendly. And people, this was the first, I would call, free anti-regime demonstration ever since the communists got into power. Mm. And people from the pavements just joined us. News traveled by word of mouth in capital. People stopped working. Workers came out of the factories. Wow. I would say that easily two or 300,000 people had been on the street by, by the time the afternoon came. Mm. So we, it was a very, very spontaneous demonstration yeah. because the students, we were organized to go on the street. But there was only you know, a few thousand of us all over the town. And now we were talking about a massive crowd which was totally unorganized. Yeah. And uh, it was, I, I don't quite remember how it was decided, but it was decided that we will march to a statue of a Polish general who fought with the Hungarians against the Austrian Empire in mm. the 19th century. And because it's symbolic, we support the Poles. And so we started marching across town and it, the crowd grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was a very, very happy atmosphere and people started chanting slogans, which was, Minden orszak katonája menjen saját hazájába. Roughly translated, soldiers of all lands go back to your homelands, uh, which practically meant Russians go home. And eventually people started shouting, Ruskis go home. And then there was talk of let's go to outside parliament and let's get Imre Nagy, that popular communist, yeah. back into government and let's have him, let's have him speak to us. 
So I went with that crowd to outside Parliament. It was a very happy atmosphere, a hell of a lot of us. And we were waiting and waiting for Imre Nagy to appear. We didn't know where he was. And he didn't come or hadn't come. And someone just said to me, you know, uh, there's a massive statue of Stalin at the other part of town. Yeah. People started knocking on the Stalin statue. Why don't we go there? Sounds like fun. Yeah. Oh, great, you know, let's, let's go there. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we went there, and there was a real carnival atmosphere. And I had absolutely no premonition of violence, whatever. Um, I, I noticed that as we were going, there was a trades union building, and they were knocking down the Red Star from the trade union building. Right. And all I said to my mates, we were still from the university, all I said to them is, I reckon there won't be a Marxism seminar tomorrow, so everyone laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got to the Stalin statue and there were workers with, you know, uh, trying with chains and lorries to pull the statue down. And there was, it was like a real carnival, no violence, mm. whatever. In fact, I was trying to get a date with a girl who was a music student, and we agreed on a date on 26th of October, yeah. time and place. And then suddenly, someone on motorbike drove into the crowd screaming at the top of his voice that they're shooting people at the radio station. What had happened was that the students had issued 16-point demands or 14-point demands, I forget, and they took it to the radio to be read in. The radio broadcast a message from the then leader of the Communist Party, who was still a hardliner. People, rumor, I didn't hear the speech at the time, but it was rumored that he called us fascists and everyone was outraged. Mm. In fact, he didn't, but he was pretty hardline about it mm. and uh, condemned the whole demonstration and everything. And people only demanded that the students are allowed into a studio to read their own demands. So they allowed a number of students in, mm. and they never let them out because there was security police guarding the radio already. And the crowd built up, out, I wasn't there at the time, the crowd had built up outside the radio, and then the security police opened fire on the unarmed crowd. And by the time I got there, you could hear the guns going, and there was a Budapest is the equivalent of the Grand Boulevard of Paris, something mm. like that. Yes, yeah. And on that boulevard, we were unmolested by security police, and the narrower street led up to the radio. Mm. And very foolishly, unarmed, we ran in uh, because we were outraged. Mm. And then they opened fire on us, and next to me, a 14-year-old girl was shot. And we just ran back and then gathered again outside free of that fire range. Mm. And uh, there were ordinary Hungarian soldiers and policemen, and they weren't turning against us. Mm. We asked them for their weapons. They wouldn't give it to us, but wouldn't turn on us either. And then workers arrived uh, from ammunition factories from the south of town, yeah. and they armed themselves, and they went into fight. We asked them for weapons, and we just got enough for ourselves, so they didn't give us any weapons. Yeah. And then someone said, there's a military barracks not far from here, let's go and get the weapons there. Ordinary Hungarian soldiers will not fire on us. 
So we went to the military barracks and the, the big gates were closed. And someone, people got something like a huge wooden column, probably used for electric pylons, mm. using it like a battery ram. They broke one of the gates. And I was pretty much in the front of that crowd. And the gates fell, it fell in. There was a line of Hungarian soldiers with bayonets fixed and a lieutenant or a first lieutenant, I can't remember, mm. was telling us to back off, otherwise he'll open fire on us. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't move back because there was such a crowd building up behind us. Mm. And to be honest, I didn't believe they would fire on us. I wasn't that frightened. Even even after what had happened previously? These were army people, not, right. not security police. Oh, so these were Hungarian Hungarians, ordinary guys who were drafted for military service. Yeah, know. so it could, it could have been someone could, you knew. Yeah, of course, even. yeah. And right on, you know, we, we couldn't, we didn't, and we couldn't back out. Mm. And he said something to the soldiers, and the soldiers just pushed him aside, the officer, and let us in. Mm. And we found uh, first World War type rifles without ammunition. So we had uh, rifles, no ammunition. Yeah. We knew how to handle them because the communists were a bit suicidal. They <laughs> did train all university people. And in the summer holiday, you had to go to a military camp for it. I knew by that time how to handle a rifle, how to handle a hand grenade, and how to handle a revolver, not the submachine gun yet. Mm. But we still, we had no ammunition. And the soldiers told us that there's another factory actually manufacturing bullets. Right. So we got onto a truck and drove there, got the bullets, and came back to help the fight at the radio. So we got there in time and got into a battle with the security police so that we had been shot at before that because when we were coming back with the bullets, we passed the street where there was a security police garage. Yeah. And they saw that we had weapons, we didn't see them. They fired on us, they hit no one. That was the first time I was fired on. And then when we went to that printer's building, that was the first time I fired on a human being. Mm. And obviously we were terrified. There was anger in us, and, and, uh, but also fear a great deal. Mm. I remember, I think the only way I could describe that I didn't dare to run away. You were fixed. I, I didn't dare to run away. Yeah, you were fixed to... to... No, it, it, was, it would have been a shame. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't have been able to face myself and yeah. run away. My instinct was to run away. That was my primary instinct. Eventually, we were squeezed out by the security police. Mm. We lost that fight. They were more professional than us. How long a time frame are we talking about? Was this over... over... Hours or days or no? This we are talking a very short time frame because I didn't have a watch, <laughs> but it was dark by the time I got to the radio building. It yeah. was October, and it was dark already when the Stalin statue was being knocked down. Right, and we were fighting until dawn at that printing workshop. So. I would say, unless I'm talking about five hours, all this happened to me. Mm. I think so. I'm not sure. 
and then I had to escape across town. Then I suddenly realized that my parents don't know what happened to me. They must have heard the shooting. And I went home, which was quite difficult to get back mm. uh, because the Russians were controlling. By that time, the Russian army had come in from the countryside. Right. They were always in occupation. But they, but they, were, they weren't to, in yeah, the cities. They, were they moved up to the capital. So this is when things become a lot more dangerous. When we knew the Russians were coming, we were already fighting the security police. And one of the guys who had had army experience, he said among us that, uh, you know, it was a totally spontaneous group. I, there was no mates of mine there anymore. Mm. I didn't know anyone. We were just there because fate threw us together yeah. and there was a common cause. The guy said, don't, don't fire on the Russians. They probably won't fire on us. And that on the first night it worked. We didn't open fire on them. They trundled past and they just gave a show of strength. Yeah. Um, later on, yes, there was fighting with the Russians. But uh, I went home, saw my parents, and dad really moved me. He hugged me, was nearly in tears, and he said, you are fighting the system I helped to build and I'm proud of you. Mm. You know, it's, you know, it was obviously a hard, mm. hard sentence to say. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We got mixed up with a group of people in the middle of town who said that we ought to go out in trucks to such and such a place south of Budapest. Yeah. There's ammunition factory and bring weapons and ammunition for our cause. Yeah. And uh, we should go unarmed because the Russians are controlling the roads out and pretend to be workers. And by that time, my future first wife was with me. That's, that's where we hooked up during the revolution. She was a very brave girl. She's not alive anymore. Mm. Um, 
And we got onto that truck and the pe people, the older people who knew what they were doing, they yeah. said, for God's sake, anyone with weapons, leave them here. We left ours. And then we ran into a Russian, uh, suddenly when we were driving in the dark, mm. uh, reflectors, you know, searchlights came on from both sides of the road and there were Russian tanks lined up. We had to get off. We were searched and two guys had weapons on them. Bloody idiots. And the Russians lined us up. They blankly said to us that come, they called themselves the revolution. We were counter-revolution in that weird language. Yeah. If you come over to the side of revolution, you are spared. The rest of you will be shot. How much of this was theater to make us scared, which was very successful, or how much of it was real, I wouldn't know. Mm. Eventually, they took us to a Hungarian military barracks and locked us up. Next day, the Russians weren't there, the Hungarian officers weren't there, and the ordinary soldiers let us go. So I went home to sleep on the night of the 3rd of November. Mm. And the next morning, early morning, I woke up to heavy guns, and I knew it was over. I didn't even go back to fight. I thought it was a total waste of time. Yeah. Some people fought on. How old were you at this time? 18. You know, we were leafletting and uh, there were strikes being organized, even death took part in organizing strikes and mm. on, we were leafletting and around the 21st or 22nd of November I was going home after throwing away anti-Soviet leaflets and um, the new puppet government by Janusz Kadar, mm. slogans against him. I was going home, Dad was waiting on the corner and said, don't come back, they've been looking for you. So where, where do I go? Out, get out of Hungary. I said, Dad, I don't want to go out of Hungary. This is, this is my country. Mm. You'll be arrested. In the best case, you will be imprisoned. In the worst case, you'll be shot straight away. Just go. I said, Dad, don't be silly. If they bung up everyone who fought or was on the street. Mm. All the factories and schools can practically close down in this town. So dad says, you are an idiot. You don't understand. They will make a, an example of a few of you who have been reported. You yeah. obviously have been reported. Uh, I said, then I'm not going without my best mate who was four streets down. Mm. Said your best mate had also been looked for. I just talked to his mom. He's already at a safe place. You go there. And he's been reported. So I gathered there was someone from the neighborhood who saw me with arms. Right. Who must have informed. So he and I and a third bloke got on a train. There was general strike, but the Western railway line was working because the railway workers knew people wanted to escape from the capital and they took us free. Mm. Crowded trains. That got us some false papers saying we were grain inspectors from the capital because he worked in agricultural business and uh, he looked so townish anyway at the yeah. time. So we got on a train which was crowded with grain inspectors, I think, <laughs> chock-a-block full, 50 or 60 kilometers near the border to a town called Dürer, yeah. where they wouldn't go any further, the trains. And we got out there. We had one of Dad's old friends address there. We slept the night there and set up, set off on foot across mm. the border. When we got near the border, there was a farmhouse in the middle of the night. Mm. And we knocked on the door, so the guy opened. And I mean, Dad had given me what my mom prepared for me in a 
briefcase, which was a bottle of plum brandy in case the Russians catch up with all the good bargaining chip drink with the Russians. Yeah, those. Toothbrush, about one month's worth of, one month's salary worth of Hungarian money, mm. quite a bit. And I put a handgun in it, which, which was a very stupid thing to do. And uh, that's why I had on me, and we, we, we all had money from our parents. Mm. We offered this guy in the farmhouse money to take us across the border because he knew the lay of the land. This guy wouldn't take us across. He said, he's not risking it. He said, it's two pieces of glass. If we go southwest, there are the swamps, mm. and the Russians dead go in there. So we said, no, do we. You know, mm. dark at night, I don't want to die. He said, the other, only other thing, he says, you know, you go no, uh, northwest, there's a huge Hungarian border guard barracks practically straddling the border. Mm. Russians had occupied it, and there are searchlights going regularly. Mm. If you go as near them as you dare, the searchlights are regular, so you just flatten yourself. Try to go as near as you dare the Russian sentries, because they won't expect you that near. Mm. And he said, that's your only chance if you don't want to go into the swamps. So we took that. That's a huge <laughs> risk. I don't know how long it took. I, I, I think that was, that was when I was most scared in my life. Yeah. Terrified. I don't know how, how long it took. Eventually, we managed to crawl through. Already, people who had got across, Austrian border guards were helpful. They were shouting at us at one point, don't go there, you're going back into Hungary because the border takes a switch. Right. And then finally we got through. I burst into tears because I suddenly realized I'm leaving home. There was a railway station there mm -hmm. and there were two trains waiting to take the refugees up to either Vienna or refugee camps. And uh, we got on a, one of the trains, and I got separated from my friends. They were taken to Vienna. I was taken to uh, Upper Austria mm. uh, to an old Second World War displaced person camp. Mm. And they were expecting 400 Hungarian refugees, 1,300 of us arrived. And there wasn't enough food, which I don't blame the Austrians. They were extremely helpful, extremely mm. decent numbers, you know, yeah. almost impossible to cope with. So we had a meeting in the camp that all the food goes to women, children, especially pregnant women, yeah. oldies. So we lived on black coffee for several days. And it wasn't the Austrians' fault, but they had left the barb wires up since the war in that place. And they just got me somehow. Mm. I couldn't and I wanted to know where my friends were. I, I just walked out of the camp. No one was stopping me. We were guarded. Mm. I hitchhiked to Vienna. Mm. And I had lots of decent people on the way helping me. You know, I only met kindness mm. everywhere. And uh, I got to Vienna in the end, hooked up with my mate, because there were oh, so many Hungarians there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just asking people. And I hooked up with my mates, and the final thing was that uh, I met Dad on the street, accidentally. You met your father? Yeah, they had to escape, yeah. partly because they'd been after me once I left. Yeah. They didn't believe I had left. And then also Dad had uh, this uh, 
crime of being organizing strikes, so they had to leave. Yeah. And that told me they were going to the States because a friend of theirs, their closest friend, had a had a brother living in the States who was professor of economics mm. at Ann Arbor, Michigan yeah. University, and an advisor to then Vice President Nixon. Wow. So he had pool. And uh, ah, they, cool. yeah, they, they, they would arrange for my parents as well to go with them to the States. And I wouldn't go with them. That said, come, you know, they took it for granted I'll go with them. I said, yeah. I'm not going to the States. And he got very annoyed, and why not? And my argument was several. I'm, I want to stay in Europe because we, I was an idiot. I believed that the Hungarians will start again. Yeah. It was the slogan at the time going, let's start again in March. Yeah. And I didn't want to be far away. And the other one was that I'm European, I thought. But the main, main argument for me was that every European country opened its gates for Hungarian refugees at the time. Probably the West felt a bit guilty in not being able to help mm. without risking a third world war, naturally. Mm. The Americans, whose propaganda hinted that they will help out the Hungarians, were the only ones who made you queue for hours at their consulates, fingerprinting, asking the usual stupid questions about mm. have you ever been a member of the Communist Party and making things very difficult. Mm. So I really thought sod them. Mm. You know, that's, you were the loudest in the anti-communist propaganda stakes and you are the one who are putting up barriers. Yeah. I was very bullshit about it. It's probably the wrong word to use in this context. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't. Then we had a row with Dad yeah. <laughs> there. And then next day he tracked me down. We were in a, student, in a refugee hostel. Mm. He tracked me down. It was, and he came and he said... Sorry, Peter, I understand you want to be independent, which was also a big thing. I wanted to build my own. Of course. Life. And I understand. And I forgot that I was 14 when I got up to the capital mm. and come and see your mom and say goodbye to her. And that was it. Mm. They went to the States. I, I came to England. Did you see them again after that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to the first time three years after it. I went and spent and worked the whole summer in New York where they ended up in Bronx. And, Brilliant. And then, of course, uh, our uh, mom and dad also came over to England later than they could afford to. And I went back in 1966 mm. and then dad died in 68 and then mom became a more frequent visitor to England. Eventually I bought her a small flat in London, in the same street where they were living at the time. Mm. And mom, mom died in England. So what were your first impressions when you arrived in England? There's uh, immediately a smile there. I'm interested to know why. <laughs> my first impressions were incredible tidiness and organisation because... Uh, when we landed, I don't remember which airport it was, but it wasn't one of the London airports. Mm. But we were being driven through villages, and I saw these cat's eyes in the middle of the road, which were totally new to me. I said, God, what thoughtfulness, what organization. Mm. And we went through neat English villages, 
it wasn't obviously a motorway because we went through villages. Mm. I don't know where it was, really don't. Mm. And uh, I thought, you know, what a tidy country. The weather was horrible. Mm. But then I had my first experience of English generosity, which I never, ever forget. We ended up in London, and once they established we were students, we had the opportunity to work in England, but take an entrance exam to university, and if we get it, we'll get a scholarship. Wow, that's fantastic. What happened was that the University Vice-Chancellor's Committee mm. and the Lord Mayor's Fund, how they combined, I don't know, they set up a enormous sum of money to take in over 400 Hungarian refugee students to Britain and give them the opportunity to work, to learn English, mm. and pass an entrance exam. This was a tremendous opportunity. I didn't believe I could pass anything because my English just wasn't there, apart from cool, trumpet, you know, mm. bebop. <laughs> anyway, we landed up at the University of London Union in Mallet Street, yeah. in the common room, about eight Hungarians sitting at a table, mm. two of us speaking English pretty well, and suddenly, an English lad appears, and through the interpretation of the, the interpreting services of those two guys, mm. told us that he was a medical student. His name was Roger McCoy, mm. and it is his birthday, and his dad has more money than he can spend, and he gave him an enormous amount of money. And he felt, felt very ashamed that Britain could do nothing for the Hungarians. Would we do him the honor of having lunch on him and being going with him? And we were pretty hungry anyway. Wow. So he took us out to lunch somewhere on Southampton, Southampton Row. Yeah. And then at the end, he said, where are you going? I th we were on our way to Birmingham. Mm. So we said, Birmingham. So I said, write down my address and telephone number in case any of you get back to London, please look me up. Mm. Very generous. Okay, I was the one who got back to London and suddenly thought of Roger's kindness and I rang him up. By that time, I could speak a few words of English. I was pretty terrified of the phone, but I thought it was my duty to try. Mm. So a lady took the phone and um, she told me she was Roger's fiance, Pamela. Yeah. And I haltingly explained who I was and what I had to do with Roger. Oh, she said, do come around. Roger will be very pleased. It's his birthday on Saturday. So I thought to myself, birthday? That was in December. I didn't say anything. I said, she gave me an address. I went there. It was his birthday then. So that means it wasn't his birthday before and he was just being nice. He was being nice. But he didn't want you to think that you were accepting charity. Yeah, exactly. Also, he didn't have a dad. He was brought up by a widowed mum. He wasn't filthy rich at all. He was spending his grant. Oh. And that... That gave me a measure of the sort of the English being not only generous but tactful. Mm. And there were also when we were at Birmingham, the refugee hostel, before Christmas, students from Birmingham University came over and said, each one offering to take a Hungarian home for Christmas with them. Mm. And the guy called Peter Carrington, not not the politician, yeah. a student at Birmingham came and there were, I was with my best mate. The third one of us had gone to America because he was related to the professor. Right. But we wouldn't go. And we, again, through an interpreter, said to him that we are very, very grateful to you. 
but uh, we'd rather stay because we did everything together. We wouldn't want to be separated. No? Mm. He said, no problem, both of you come. So he took us home. His dad was Len Carrington, a milkman in Good, Good Green, a simple family with two university sons and a daughter, a lovely wife, Edna. And that was our English Christmas, which had lovely adventures, like uh, when they served us coffee, mm. we looked at each other with Julius and in very muttered Hungarian and said, this is the funniest coffee we ever had. <laughs> Dinner in the other it was tea with milk, which we never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but uh, they were incredibly nice, incredibly generous. They found out that we were jazz fans, both of us. So they took us to a jazz dance at Ali Pali, Alexandra Palace. Yeah. Um, which band was it? Alex Welsh. So presumably uh, that that was one of the first experiences, was it, of pure, unadulterated English jazz? Yes. Yeah. And there were very nice relatives. They came around and we thought first that to say goodbye in English means all the best because... Uh, they all, being Christmas, they always parted saying all the best. Yeah. So for quite a few days, we said all the best to everyone. We said goodbye to. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we learned some from them, and they, they were wonderful people. I kept, but they're not alive anymore, the parents. Yeah. Roger McCoy had gone to Australia. Yeah. I experienced only, obviously, you met idiots in England, and you, you met racists, and you had... Uh, in in the tobacconist, you had uh, no no colored, no Irish, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. In, still in evidence, but by and large, the majority of English people I met at the time were generous, almost shy about being generous. Uh, and I learned very soon that these continental prejudices about the English being cold and aloof are not. The English were painfully shy. Yeah. At the time, they didn't even shake hands. And they waited for a third person to introduce you. So when and how were you reunited with your your future wife? Well, I parted from her by saying that uh, I have to leave. Mm. I was 18, she was 16. And she was not reported by, to the police. Mm. So she said, Sater, I'm coming with you. And I heard that at the border it was very difficult to get through and dangerous. Mm. I had no option. I said, no, you're not coming with me because, you know, you want to live. Mm. And that's goodbye. And, but I'm coming. No, you're not. So I just, I just left. Mm. And I, was, I remember riding a bike and I was crying so hard that I fell off that bike after we parted. Really? The last words were, I'll come after you, you will see. Late January in Birmingham refugee hostel, I get a letter through the Red Cross. Yeah. They traced people then from her that she made it across the border. Right. And she was bunged up in a in a convent school in France because she was Catholic mm. and underage. And she's there. So the first time we could meet was in 1958 in Brussels. Yeah. At the World Exhibition. Oh, really? Yes. What a great place to meet, though, yes. the World Exhibition. Well, my, my cousin who had emigrated from Hungary in 1948 was living in Brussels. I was mm. visiting him. And uh, there was, we, we were like cats and dogs with that girl. Mm. She was very spirited. We married my firstborn son, Peters, from that marriage. Mm. Uh, it wasn't a good marriage. It was a very rocky marriage. We fought like mad. Mm. 
but she, she was a very, very brave girl. Mm. Uh, she was, she had a troubled childhood, it's a totally different story. Mm. Uh, troubled worse than mine, I think, because the family was awful. Mm. We had to get married to find out that we weren't for each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what journey did your life take next after you finished uh, your uh, university? What did you I, end up? I went to LSE. I worked uh, part-time in a youth club in Stepney. Stepney? Yeah, which was really stand then. Mm. And because I had some little gang parts myself, I could handle them despite my foreign accent. Mm. I knew the, the rule number one was the same in a similar district in Hungary, never called the cops. Yeah. Which I never did. Yeah. So I earned some respect there. And while doing that, I thought, God, why don't I go and become a teacher? I like kids. And if I can handle this lot, I can handle a school far better. Mm. And in fact, then I went from LSE, where I had an economics degree, and then went teaching for seven years in a grammar school, which was in a huge working class intake, mm. which I liked. And I loved teaching. And uh, then I went to the BBC. At the time, it was a wonderful place, Bush House. Very, very, you know, it, they still believe in their mission. 40 odd nations mixed together. And all the British technicians and all the Brits who were working for the World Service were people with a worldview, with a travel experience behind them with having met foreigners so it was a totally different from the rest of the bbc it absolutely was, it wasn't insular it was expansive it was is it nation shall speak peace into nation is that the i think that's slogan? generally yes that was the it slogan. was the slogan wasn't yes. it yes and and it was a wonderful place to work because uh, people were very motivated mm. it was wonderful yeah it sounds wonderful yeah we were on the same floor as the Finns, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Poles. And uh, oh, with the Finns, we got on very well. They were terrible drinkers, but they had some yes, real fun yeah. people, yeah. That's fantastic. They should make a drama about what the World Service must have been like at the time. That, that, would be, that could be a comedy. Yeah, that, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Just to go back to teaching for a while. So when you were a teacher, tell me a bit about the kind of students that you that you dealt with and that you remember. Did anyone did any of them stick out in your in your memory? I keep up with quite a few of them. Oh really? Yes. I mean the ones who became famous would be obviously Alan Johnson, who became a politician. And uh I, I, there's a way well, I shouldn't be saying on a podcast, but mind you, I did words about this with Alan. Um, I was vaguely aware of an Alan Johnson being, at the time, I think, education secretary. Yeah. But I didn't put the two things together because I was back in Hungary by that time. One day in Hungary, the phone rings and I pick up the phone and he says, I'm so-and-so from the Times. Are you Peter Pell? I used to work for BBC World Service. Yeah. Uh, did you teach at Sloan Grammar School? I said, yes. Did you teach Alan Johnson? I said, look, I taught as many Johnsons as there are Russians. I can't, can't quite put my finger on Alan. Yeah. Um, I said, I remember clearly Ray Johnson, who is uh, doing life at the time for murder. Yeah. And it's obviously not him then. And I remember one Johnson who, sorry about this, 
farted in front of the deputy head, <laughs> to which Mr. Bailey said, stop it, Johnson, to which Johnson said, which way did it go, sir? To which I said, this could be your politician, with, judging by the quick wit. Yes. And then, uh, sure enough, I came back on my, you know, visit to usual regular visit to England. Yeah. Alan found me and wanted to have tea with me in the Commons because he was already writing his life story. Mm. And I was in his life story for a few sentences and wasn't entirely bad what he wrote about me. And uh, I, I confronted him with this story. And he said, was it you? He said, yes, but for God's sake, don't publicize it. He said, Alan, you've got so many more votes. Of course, yeah. of course. But now he's not in for votes. He's out of politics, so I hope he will forgive me for yeah. breaking this story. I'm sure. And uh, here is one. The other one is Steve Hackett, ex-Genesis guitar player. Oh, wow. He was, um, he was actually a rival because Alan Johnson uh, ran a pop group. And wouldn't have Steve because he didn't think that Steve was good enough on guitar. And yeah, that's fantastic. I keep up with both of them. Yeah. How long did you spend? Well, at I the... spent six full years teaching, full-time mm. teaching, and two more years part-time teaching because uh, they couldn't get another economics master to sure. finish the A-level courses I started. Right. And I made a deal with the BBC that they let me teach the first and second year six for two years until... Not. So altogether eight years. And from then it was it was you were the, at the World Service. Yes. And how long were you at the World Service for? Shameful admittance comes. Uh, Thirty-one years. Man and boy. Yes. Goodness me, that must have been such a fantastic life. If you had to give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? That's a tough one. Don't always act on impulse. I tended to do that a lot. Mm. Think of consequences to others and to yourself before you act. Mm. I wasn't always good at that. And that was Peter. Quite simply, it was an honour to listen to his story. Also, I found it impossible to hear him talk about his experiences as a refugee in Britain without drawing parallels with all that's happening today. As Peter said himself when we spoke, people never learn from history. They just don't. As you'll have heard in abundance, this podcast is about sharing some fantastic life stories. But there are well over a million chronically lonely people in the UK who have no one to share their stories with. If you'd like to know more about ways to change this, then please go online and visit campaigntoendloneliness.org and find out how together we can make loneliness a thing of the past. Thanks again to Peter, and also thanks to ACAST for hosting the show. See you next time. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.